Acts 17 is loaded with such good stuff. Before we read the word, let's go before the author in prayer. Our Lord, as we have worshiped you in song, we now worship you in study. Glad for this opportunity to open your word and the freedom to do so, to be able to drink deeply from this well of life. And so it is that we would pray for your spirit to come and to bear witness with the reading and the preaching of your word for your glory and the building up of the body of Christ. To this end, as always, we pray for the preacher who is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Acts 17 is so good. Let's get right to it. The word of God from Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. Listen to God's perfect word. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Some parts and some verses of the Bible are more exciting than other parts. Even on the surface level, there is excitement to the Old Testament battle scenes, Jesus' miracles, and the Song of Songs. The recitation of laws and genealogies doesn't quite get our motor revving in the same way. Verse 1 seems a little blah. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Why the details about their travels? Why not say, up next, Thessalonica? 
Well, the travel information shows us that Paul isn't simply meandering through the countryside, stopping at every village and town along the way, talking about Jesus. Paul is a man on a mission. In this case, he passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia. He didn't stay and minister there. He passed through. It's about 30 miles, a long day's travel from Philippi, where he was most recently, to Amphipolis. Stay the night and then another 30 plus miles to go to Apollonia. And then another 30 miles after that to get to Thessalonica. 100 miles total from Philippi to Thessalonica in three days. Paul is a man on a mission. He is going from big city to big city. And that's the point. Thessalonica was the largest city of Macedonia. It was the capital city of Macedonia with a population of about 200,000. The port there was the place for importing and exporting. In fact, the city still exists today. Paul's mission plan was to preach in the major cities and plant a church there. It was not that Paul didn't care about small towns and villages, but he knew that if he planted a strong church in the big city, the gospel could spread out from there. It's good for us to remember this as we think that the gospel can't possibly take hold in a cosmopolitan, pluralistic, secular, pagan, big city. Actually, the opposite is true. Biblical history and church history has shown us that the gospel has typically flourished most fully in the most urban of settings. Remember that Paul and Barnabas were initially commissioned and sent out by a big city church. Antioch was at that time the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Uh, Antioch that had sent them was kind of like our Chicago in the U.S., right? You got New York and L.A. Chicago is the third largest city. Pittsburgh, by the way, I looked it up, is the 63rd largest city in the U.S., wedged right between Stockton, California, and St. Paul, Minnesota, in case you're curious. So people who have studied cities in the Bible have pointed out that there are more than 1,400 references to cities and more than 25 careful studies of a mission to a particular city. And so the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and progresses through scores of cities and ends up with Paul in Rome. And so Acts moves from the most important biblical city to the most important secular city of that day. Thessalonica is big enough and diverse enough that there is a synagogue. And verse 2 tells us that as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Why was this Paul's custom? Because it was the point of contact. The point of contact for Paul was the synagogue because this is where people who were in need gathered together and it was people who were interested in talking about religious things. In Butler City, we are looking for points of contact where there is a need that we can identify and where we can minister the gospel fully in that place of need. We're especially glad for the leadership of those who live in the city. It's told that when uh, Evie Hill, the great pastor who was uh, out at Mount Baptist Church in Los Angeles, his goal was to have a Christian presence in every block of the city of Los Angeles. He'd taken the idea from his days in the political arena where there were block captains 
and the block captains would go around and get out the vote. And so in South Los Angeles, where the church met, there were around 3,000 blocks at the time of his untimely passing. I think he had over 2,000 block captains that were praying for, ministering to, and connecting with the people in their area. So what did Paul do? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul didn't start talking political and social issues. He didn't start debates. He didn't raise various topics of common interest and talk about that. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. And that word translated reasoned is where we get our word dialogue, a give and take conversation. He didn't talk at people. He talked with people. He had dialogue about the scriptures. And verse 3 tells us specifically that from the scriptures, he was explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And Jesus is this Christ. But again, he isn't Bible bashing. He isn't forcing the Bible or an interpretation of the Bible down someone's throat. The word for explaining literally means to open up. And the word for proving means to place or to set out before someone like you would set a plate of food. And so Paul wasn't Bible bashing. He was opening up the scriptures and setting it before the people as a feast. Like a really good buffet with a table full of food, even some foods that you don't usually eat but you can try out because it's included in the buffet. Paul is setting out this delicious feast, a new treat. The promised Messiah wasn't the military leader as we had previously thought, but was someone who had to suffer and die in order to conquer sin and conquer the world as Savior and Lord. And Jesus is this Messiah. In the city, in evangelism, we do not need to fear dialogue, the exchange of ideas, because the banquet feast of Jesus is exceedingly better than anything that anyone else has to offer. Serving up Jesus from the scriptures is not only better from the beliefs of other religions, but it's also better than the entertainment and programmed show offered by too many churches. Some churches advertise themselves as having a dynamic time of worship, followed by an inspiring message. And for too many, there's no need to even bring your Bible with you. Expositional preaching is designed not to wow you with the preacher's thoughts about a given topic, but to open up the scriptures and set them before us so that the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. People are not starving for entertainment. Our culture has endless opportunities for entertainment. People are starving for the gospel. And so verse 4 tells us about those who did respond. Some of the Jews... And a large number of God-fearing Greeks. That phrase, large number, is where we get our word plethora. It's a great word, isn't it? Plethora. You know when you got a plethora, you get a whole bunch of something. And in fact, what it says here is many plethora. And so it's interesting that a few Jews were persuaded, but many plethora of Greeks. Why? Because it is harder to convert those who think they already know everything who are sure they have it all figured out already. This is one of the many reasons that we don't need to fear pluralism as it exists in our culture. Our society is filled with people who are open to new ideas, and that is a good thing. Benjamin Franklin famously said, if everyone is thinking the same, then no one is thinking. Don't be afraid to think. 
Don't be afraid to dialogue. Don't be afraid to keep thinking about the scriptures. Otherwise, you may insist that the world is flat, that slavery is acceptable, and that Jesus is a Republican. The rest of the account in Thessalonica tells us about the reaction of those who refuse to think about the scriptures, the jealous Jews. And why were they jealous? Because they lost the argument. And it wasn't just that they were out-debated. They lost the argument and lost their influence on all the people who were persuaded. They were probably most upset about losing the influence of the prominent women. They had lost their influence over the influential women in the town. And so the jealous Jews didn't return to the scriptures to form a better argument. They formed a mob. They went into the marketplace and hired some bad characters to form a mob and start a riot in the city. And then with great hypocrisy, they accused Paul of causing trouble. (laughs) Clearly, they do not have the truth on their side. They had lost the argument because the truth is on the side of Jesus Christ. And their hypocritical actions are filled with deceit. In the men's Bible study yesterday morning, we observed that Jesus didn't stir up trouble. He was not the agitator. Jesus didn't go picking a fight. The fight found him. And people vehemently opposed his message, and so they opposed him. And it's no different today. We minister the gospel, a gospel that says God comes to us in our need, sacrifices himself in love in order to redeem us and the world. Could there be a less threatening message. God loves us and suffers to the point of death so that we can have abundant life and eternal life. And many plethora hear this message and rejoice, but some will get upset about it. Here's a buffet table full of delicious food set out for all and already paid for. It's for you. Enjoy. And yet some people get deeply offended and make outrageous accusations and demands. And there's this mob mentality The mob mentality is the last resort for those who do not have delicious truth on their side. And so the jealous Jews with that mob mentality and an actual mob go to the city officials. So you get to the end of Thessalonica and you ask yourself, was the ministry in Thessalonica a successful ministry venture? The answer is yes. First of all, this didn't happen as short as it looks It wasn't just three weeks that Paul was there. Verse 2 says that Paul reasoned with them for three Sabbaths in in the synagogue, but then most likely he began to conduct his own church services with those who had already come to Christ and those who were still coming, and he did this for an unstated period of time. In his letter to the Philippians, and we remember the Philippians last week, Lydia and the slave girl, and the Roman jailer, those who might have been in prison with Paul and so many others. He writes the Philippians and he says, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. And so Paul was apparently in Thessalonica long enough that the Philippians sent support to Thessalonica multiple times from 100 miles away. Read sometime the first and second letter to the Thessalonians. And by the way, 1 Thessalonians is probably the second oldest of Paul's letters uh, behind Galatians. The letters are not in chronological order, just like none of the Bible is in chronological order. And so 1 Thessalonians is this older letter. And in the letters, it's sent by Paul, Silas, and Timothy, who remember how our gospel came to you 
not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. And that letter goes on to say, you know, brothers, that our visit to you is not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you this gospel in spite of strong opposition, all of which shows great consistency with what we read in Acts. And later in the letter to the Thessalonians, we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Then Paul gives an additional note that's helpful. He says, Timothy has just now come to us, which we'll read about in Acts 18, from you in Thessalonica, and has brought good news about your faith and love. And so apparently, Timothy had stayed behind to pastor in Thessalonica, and then perhaps again, even after they had been in Berea, he went back again. So let's go to Berea with them. Verse 10 begins, As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Are you crazy? (laughs) After what happened in Thessalonica, you're going to go back to the synagogue? Paul says, sure. Some Jews believed and many plethora of Gentiles. It is the point of contact. Sure, we're just sharing the gospel from the scriptures. Why wouldn't we go do this? Sure, some will get upset about it, but that doesn't mean it isn't true or that we should stop. And so still today, some will get upset when we minister the gospel, but many will believe So let's evangelize and minister the gospel continually and completely. Verse 11 is one of the most exciting verses in the Bible. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. From that, many churches over the years have had a Berean Bible study people who faithfully study the Bible. Notice the three statements about the Bereans. They received the message with great eagerness. They examined the scriptures. They examined the scriptures every day, not just on Sundays. It wasn't about just going to Sunday school. It wasn't Sunday school is the only place to study the Bible. It isn't that Sunday is the only time to study the Bible. A Berean Bible study eagerly examines the scriptures every day. This is what God wants for us, to eagerly examine, to be glad for God's word, to love God's word. It's what we saw from our Old Testament reading in Psalm 119, a love for God's word. It's no good having a Bible in the house simply collecting dust. Psalm 119 speaks of faith that delights in God's word in all circumstances, in all walks of life, at times that you don't feel like it, but you still do it because it is right and true. We also read in the Old Testament of King Josiah in 1 Kings 22nd and 23rd, and an incredible moment in redemptive history when the book of the law had been lost. It had been lost sitting in the temple gathering dust, and it's found and read to King Josiah And after King Josiah has it read, he immediately begins to implement it. That's a reminder to us that we can start or restart reading the Bible anytime. There's no bad time to start. It's always good to do. 
It's always good to have your love for the Lord renewed and a love for his word. There's sometimes we simply read through the Bible systematically, but sometimes it's God's providence, circumstances in life, a question that gets raised, something that God does in our world or in our hearts and in our minds that directs us back to study God's word. I think I've told you before about the time that I was in college. And of course, when you're in college, you're having all kinds of new ideas and new thoughts that you're wrestling through. And somewhere along the way, as I was hearing this mixture of thoughts, I began to wonder, who was Jesus really? And here I am, a college student, trying to figure out, how do you figure out who Jesus really was? I said, probably go to the Bible where you can read about who Jesus was. And so I started reading the Gospel of Matthew. And I read through the Gospel of Matthew, and then the Gospel of Mark, and then the Gospel of Luke, and then the Gospel of John in one sitting, because I couldn't get enough. It was one of the most uh, rich times I've ever had of experiencing God's nearness as I read his word because I was searching the scriptures for the truth about who Jesus was and found the truth right there in his word. Because it turns out the more we study the Bible, the more we find out that the Bible is absolutely true, just as it promises. In fact, on that, go back to, uh, it's the word is politarch in Greek, and it's translated as city officials. Um, So it's a form of government, but that word politarch is only um, found here. It's not found in other ancient literature. And so there was a time when liberal scholars used this to say that it was proof that Luke didn't know what he was writing about and could not be a trusted historian. But then later, especially during excavations in the 1800s, it was found that not throughout the Roman world, but in the city of Thessalonica was this term polytarch to describe the government there. 16 inscriptions of the words were found, including the arch above one of the city gates. And so it turned out that the term was unique to Thessalonica and further proof of Luke's extraordinary power of observation and his reliability as an historian and God's work in forming and maintaining his word. And so any person who has ever made a serious attempt to study the Bible ends up getting converted. There are many who do not make a serious attempt to study the Bible. They simply come with an agenda and refuse to read the Bible to discern what the Bible says itself. Anybody can take a verse out of context and make the Bible say something it doesn't really say. But a serious attempt to study the Bible will convert a person every time. The word translated examined is a legal term. So it means to examine or to judge, to question, to investigate. Go ahead, examine the Bible. Go ahead, investigate the Bible all you want. It's true, so go ahead. As we share the scriptures with others, we don't want them simply to believe, but to examine the scriptures for themselves, to examine the Bible for themselves. And so we ought to give each other time and space to examine the Bible. This is paradigm-shifting, life-transforming, earth-shattering truth. We ought, to exert, ex- we ought to encourage examining and questioning. The result is even better than in Thessalonica. Many of the Berean Jews believe, as well as a number of prominent Greek women and men. And then in order to show how much more noble the Berean Jews are, we are told that the Jews in Thessalonica travel the 40 miles to Berea to stir up the crowds there. 
Again, the jealous Jews don't try to reason with the Berean Jews because they are unreasonable. They simply demand to get their way. Let us be sure that none of us simply demand to get their way. When you don't get your way, don't gather a faction in order to demand your way with an unreasonable mob mentality. Too many people get hurt by the mob mentality. Remember Jesus' words on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Those who know what they are doing are not afraid of honest dialogue and discussion. We don't try to win an argument by intimidation or by arguing louder and longer than everyone else. We want to examine the scriptures in order to make sure that we understand rightly. We don't champion a personal agenda, but seek to discern God's will together. And that's it. We are glad for the whole community of the church to discern God's will together. A Berean Bible study is the kind of church that eagerly examines the scriptures together. Let that be us. In order to neutralize the unreasonable forces, the Bereans send Paul out of town, way out of town. He goes to a coast line that's about 20 miles away and then 300 miles to Athens where we'll see him next week. But Silas and Timothy stay behind in Berea to pastor this new church, and Timothy apparently goes back to Thessalonica to pastor there as well. So we're called to love God's word, but not as a legalistic, you must do this, but to say, do you love God's word? And if so, great. And if not, is to say, what's happening? And to know of Christ who loves us and to know of a God who reveals himself to us. And so we read God's word whether we feel like it or not. We read God's word together and not just on Sundays. We read God's word to discover his delight for us. We read God's word to discover and rediscover the gospel in its fullness for us. We read the Bible again and again because it's God's word. We discover how much God loves us, how great God is, and we get to share that message as a delicious feast for all the world. Let's do that. And may the truth set us free. Amen.